Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. As usual, today's show will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, and our special guest will be Dr. Paul Brayton. He's an orthopedic surgeon near Sacramento, California, who will discuss foot and ankle health and injuries. But we're going to look at some news first, Tom, to sort of set us up, you might say, and get ready for our guest. All right. Uh, and the news is related to a couple of things. One is a book that I think is pretty interesting, and some of the studies that really uh, have come as a result uh, of this book. The book is called Born to Run, A Hidden Tribe, Super Athletes, and the Greatest Race the World Has Never Seen. Ooh. And it's by Christopher McDougall. And I'll just bet most of our listeners have not heard of this book. You are correct. At least this <laughs> listener hasn't. Until now. <laughs> I learned about this book from uh, actually from my sons who were both doing a fair amount of running. Um, but it's a fascinating thing. But specifically, Christopher McDougall is talking about injuries on those who run. Uh, and he says that he began this journey to answer a simple question, why do my feet hurt? Uh, he called himself a washed up, sort of beaten up uh, runner with his knees and hips and ankles and feet uh, hurting. And our guest is going to talk a lot tonight about feet and ankles and all of the things they're connected to. And the foot bone is connected to the ankle exactly. bone and the ankle bone is <laughs> connected and, and so on. So it's all connected. It makes sense. So what did this uh, Christopher McDougall learn? Well, he, he looked, he, his research led him to this tribe and he studied this tribe and really the the it led to his findings, and a lot of his work led to this, really this movement, you might call, of so-called minimalist running craze. Now, was this tribe, I remember hearing in um, my residency in the 90s about, was it the Tuahumara Indians? Yes. Is that them? That's them. Oh, this was so cool. We're sitting <laughs> around our 10-headed microscope looking at microscope slides of skin diseases, and our director was talking about this race called the Leadville 100. Is that the race? Yeah, there's these horrendous ultra marathons that are done in the desert uh, on rock and sand. Well, in, in Denver, where I did my residency or near it, there was this 100-mile race at altitude, like an average of eight to 10,000 feet. And he talked about these Indians being given these wonderful running shoes by this running company. And they threw them away, and they went to the nearby dump, and they got these old tires and <laughs> cut the tires up and put them on the bottom of their feet and just tied them with string. It was just bizarre. So I, I want to hear the rest of the story. Well, Born to Run, it's, it's really a fascinating story about running for the love of running. Uh, he's a great writer. Uh, I've only read a portion of the book, but, but you can only read a page or two and be immediately sort of drawn into his method of storytelling. Uh, and I am certain Christopher McDougall is no friend of the running shoe companies, <laughs> uh, as he essentially blames them for countless injuries experienced by runners. Now, by that he means runners from normal folk like you and me all the way up to ultra-marathon runners okay. who run professionally. Uh, and he starts off with this statement, which I think is pretty interesting. He says, The secret to injury-free running isn't the proper shoe. It isn't stretching. It isn't even training mileage. It's skill. Healthy running is about technique. And he goes on to point out... Whenever he had a problem and, and he went to his doctor or others about his problem, they didn't tell him what to do. They told him what to buy. Oh. Uh, and, and so his whole sort of movement is based on the technique of running. So he studied this tribe of Indians, and they are, as I said, runners. Uh, and they essentially run barefoot or in these very minimalist homemade sandals like okay. uh, you're describing. And they experience really little, if any, uh, anything in the way of injuries. And men and women well into their elderly years are running horrendous numbers of miles wow. with no orthopedic so, problems at all. So this all begs the question, what is <laughs> the proper way to run? Well, he says the basic premises, uh, premise of his story is that increasingly high-heeled, super-cushioned shoes are causing people to run in a horribly unnatural way that causes the average runner to land in a continuous uh, and repetitively unnatural position. And that causes much, much more harm uh, over the long haul. 
And if you look at, not to pick on a single company, but Nike shoes, he would argue when they first came out with their shoes way back when you and I were young, <laughs> that they actually were pretty good shoes. They were minimalist shoes. So back in the um, 70s? Or? Yeah, in the early Nike days. And they were typically the, the shoes minus the spikes that sprinters run. Right, wear. right. Uh, but the shoes became more and more cushioned with a higher and higher heel that almost requires people to land on their heels uh, when they're running, which is, he would argue, very unphysiologic. Well, this is fascinating because 10 years ago, I was told I would never run again because I had a lot of hip pain. And every time I'd go out, you know, within a quarter mile, I would, my hip would just lock up. But then I was doing this workout system, and part of the workout system was uh, sprints and walks, sprints and walks, but no jogging. And I realized that whenever I sprinted, I never had pain. Mm. He talks a lot about sprinters. Typically, uh, not only do they move their feet faster, but they always land on the ball of their foot. That's exactly it. So there's been this movement toward midfoot or forefoot running. Mm, exactly. And, and once I started doing that... Not only did I run again, I, r I ran my first half marathon, and I've been running ever since. Wow. More than I ran when I was younger and without pain. And there are actually shoes made now for forefoot runners where it's thick under the ball of the foot, but not under the heel. It's funny. Now, you know, we love a little controversy on our show. We're not, <laughs> we're not afraid of it. Mm -mm. There's a multi-billion dollar industry that's built around you and I going out and buying 175 dollar pair of shoes that we have to replace every three months yes. because they're no longer uh, cushioned. So he really, Christopher McDougall, really started, I think, a craze. I think it's fair to give him credit of starting this craze of minimalist, uh, minimalist shoes. Now, Nike, I know, makes a very minimalist uh, shoe now. There are several sort of sock-like shoe products that are made. It'll be really interesting to talk with our guest later yes. about what he thinks about the shoes. But, you know, this really bore some hardcore research that's come out about this. And then way back in the early days, that's 2010, in case you don't know, <laughs> there was a study by an evolutionary biologist, Daniel Lieberman, from a little school up north called Harvard. Uh, and he published this hugely influential study in the journal Nature uh, on barefoot running. And he did a lot of complicated engineering type work where they calculate what they call collision forces oh, okay. uh, of the foot landing uh, on the ground and feet hitting the ground for runners with versus without shoes. And it led to the growth of this sort of minimalist idea and what appeared to be far fewer injuries in the non-shoed runners. Uh, and then much as happens we see in science from time to time, a few years go by, a newer study comes out in the journal Applied Physiology that seemed to contradict some of those findings. Uh, so now there's a lot of really fascinating information out there if, if you're a runner or you, you know someone who's a runner and you want to enlighten them. That a, a couple of things come up. One, experts disagree, which is always interesting. You and yes. I are used to that, aren't we? Yes, we are. Um, but there appear to be some truisms, and that is with or without shoes, it's probably more important how you run as opposed to what you wear. Um, so that's, that's an important takeaway. It looks as though when you, when you study the data that barefoot running in a strange sort of way may force people to run in a more natural, more gentle way, McDougal calls it. Because who is going to run landing on their heel if they have no shoes on? Right. That's very uncomfortable and very unnatural thing to do. Uh, it looks like there may be fewer foot injuries uh, and the barefoot runners. And I really want to ask our guest about this. Which we will. But they may have more calf injuries because of some compens compensatory right. things that they do. When I switched my running gait, I noticed it took a couple months for my calves to adjust to it. Yeah, the barefoot runners run very smoothly and very gently with a very short gait. Yes. Meaning they don't gallop. Um, they have a very short gait. It's like your chest is just in front of where your feet are landing. Your feet do not land in front of your chest. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, and then he points out, too, a soft, cushy shoe, uh, particularly for the casual, even novice runner, may promote bad form from the very beginning. And that leads to really poor knee, foot, uh, and hip health. Well, the simple way that I've thought of this is when you land on your heel, Look at the position your leg is in. It's completely straight. Your ankle 
Well, your knees and your hips are locked in a straight line. So you're transmitting force from your heel straight up to your hip. Mm. So all that force is going through the joints. But when you land on the ball of your foot, your leg looks like a spring, like a letter Z. So the muscles are taking the force instead of the joints. Yeah, some of the researchers point out that these supported arches have actually destroyed our feet. Uh, and they've made our arch muscles weaker, and they're designed to do the spring loading that you talk about. But, of course, I'm sure, like me, all of our listeners, when they hear this story, they immediately start thinking about childbirth uh, because that's what it made me think of. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) I, I love the idea in childbirth. Women will ask me, is it okay for me to do this? And they fill in an activity. And I always say the same thing. You know, you are designed to be pregnant, and you're designed to do natural human things. Sure. So it's okay to do those two things together. But this idea that our bodies are uh, are made brilliantly by our Creator to do things. One of those things is running. You know, we really are born to run. Now, most of us don't necessarily enjoy it, um, <laughs> but it's argued that running is bad for you. You'll have bad knees and bad hips. And a lot of these researchers are trying to say, no, if you run properly and run well, you're doing what you're designed to do. And that can never be bad. There are no design mistakes. You know, we're going to talk to our guest about proper shoe wear, which begs the question, when did shoes come into being? Just a few years back, around 40,000, I think we'll say. 40,000 B.C. (laughs) is what they say because looking at old skeletons, they find out that muscles, as they pull on bones, change the shape of bones. So you can tell what muscles were active, and they noticed that around 40,000 B.C. in skeletons, the toe and foot bones start getting smaller. But none of the other bones do. And so they thought, what could make only those bones get smaller? And it's, it's wearing shoes that would do that. Uh, but we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, shoes good, shoes bad, <laughs> but and this everything I- in between. This, I- this idea is interesting in that even in the minimalist running movement, they talk about protecting the skin of the foot in a dermatologic kind of way. I know you'd like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, stepping on a sharp rock and slicing your foot open. That not hurts. Not good. <laughs> uh, as opposed to a shoe that's helping you run. You just need protection from something very, very cold or very, very hot or sharp, but you don't, uh, you don't need protection from the event of running. Well, thank you. That's fascinating. I can't wait to get to our guest. But first, between that and our guest is the medical trivia question of the day, which is, from the scriptures, when Jesus watched each foot of his apostles at the Last Supper washed, and probably watched also. Watched as he washed. Yes, watched as he washed. How many bones was he holding in his holy hands each time he washed a foot? And is this number more, less, or the same as if he held each hand? Stay tuned for the last segment of the show and the answer, but we'll be back with our guest after the break on Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Welcome back. We are now with our guest, Dr. Paul Brayton. He's an orthopedic surgeon in Modesto, California, specializing in foot and ankle problems and their surgical correction. He went to medical school at Creighton, did his residency in Tennessee and Memphis, a fellowship in foot and ankle in Galveston, Texas. He is a past president of the Catholic Medical Association, and he's currently a member of the National Board of the CMA, as well as the chairman of the Media and Communications Committee, and our liaison to the international uh, collection of uh, Catholic Medical Associations. Dr. Paul Brayton, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Paul, thanks for sharing your expertise and and time with us and with our listeners. Now, I could just be speaking for myself, but I'll bet most of our listeners would agree that we tend not to think too much about our feet until something is wrong with one or both of them. What is it about ankles and feet and the bones thereof that really attracted you as an orthopedic surgeon to the specialty and that, that, that fascinates you, if you will? Well, you know, we do training... uh we did training in all the subspecialties in my residency. It was a great residency at the Campbell Clinic. And something about the foot and ankle really attracted me, and uh, a lot of people weren't doing it. But if you look at the injuries today in football, for instance, 40% of them, and I think this is true for a lot of the sports, 40% of them are foot and ankle injuries. And so now more and more of the NFL teams are, are adding a foot and ankle specialist because foot and ankle is, is a really a, a unique subspecialty in the field of orthopedics. Uh, and so it was interesting. All this stuff was really super interesting to me. 
And then the fact is, you don't think about your foot, but you walk on your foot every day. So when your foot is injured, you can't really avoid it if you want to be weight-bearing. The only thing you can do is be non-weight-bearing because it's always there and it's always painful. So that's sort of what fascinated me about so, it. So you really make a difference in people's lives because when they can't use their feet anymore, they're really limited. Yes, that's true. I, I think that's the idea. Uh, you know, when you have a really deformed foot and it's complex deformity and you're able to take it and straighten the foot out, and actually there, the orthopedics has two, depending on how you spill it, orthopedics, ortho plus P-A-E-D-I-C is straight child and P-E-D-I-C, which most people spill in America, is straight foot. So yes. it has, you know, that's, that's what we do. We straighten the foot. We get it aligned and in proper alignment, proper balance. Well, Paul, in Romans 10, it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And I realize there's a lot of Bible verses about feet. Do you have a favorite? So I I, I think I think about this Bible scene, if you will, from John 13, Uh 14 to 17. It says, if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I do. So I think about that scene at the Last Supper where the Lord washed the people's feet. Yes. And it's really powerful to me because I'm in the Order of Malta, and we take Malads to Lourdes every year, and there's a ceremony where we wash the feet of our Malads. And so, and then my son was a Malad, and that's one of the reasons I'm in the Order of Malta now. And, oh. um, of course, they washed his feet. So that's a really moving moment for a Malad to have somebody else care for him. And, and for our and, listeners who have not heard the term Malad anymore, what is that? That means the um, sick person, if you will. They either usually it's a chronic illness, such as my son who has cerebral palsy and autism, uh, chronic disability, if you will, or it could be a, a cancer or some acute, more acute medical illness, um, where they're in pal- kind of ongoing palliative care, if you will. Wow. So I'm I'm guessing that uh, also a lot of our listeners they they're hearing us talk with you, an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in problems of the foot and the ankle. And many of them have probably seen uh, a podiatrist for foot problems. I'm thinking of a large orthopedic practice that I've seen as a patient. They seem to have a whole army uh, of podiatrists in their group. Educate us a bit on the difference between an orthopedic surgeon like yourself, who specializes in foot, uh, versus a podiatrist. Well, first of all, if you look at the training, it's completely different. So an orthopedic surgeon goes through medical school, either DO, uh, doctor of, becomes a doctor of osteopathy or a medical doctor. And if you look at the two, uh, the medical allopathic physician and the osteopathic physician, the DO, they take the same boards. They have to meet the same requirements. Their schools are accredited the same way. And podiatry schools aren't accredited that way. Now, there is a push to get the podiatry schools accredited in that way, but um they're not at that level yet, and hopefully one day they will be where they would have a similar degree and take the similar board. So we go through a more stringent board of uh, a certification process. We all take the same boards, and so an MDDO can, can be considered on the same level, whereas a podiatry is a doctor of podiatric medicine, and their license is much more restricted. Some of them didn't do residencies. We do a five-year residency, and then and most of the foot and ankle people do at least a year or more fellowship uh, in foot and ankle. So and so there's a different level of training standard for that mm. than there is for a podiatrist. But how would a patient know who to see for a problem? Well, you'll see, it'll either say at the end of their name, if it says DPM, Doctor of Podiatric Medicine, that's a podiatrist. If it says MDDO, it'll usually say orthopedic foot and But if they have a foot or ankle person. problem, how do they know whether to pick a podiatrist or an orthopedic surgeon? Well, I would... Of course, I'm biased, but I would say generally to pick an orthopedic surgeon uh, because they have a higher level of training. Uh, and uh, there's more podiatrists so available in small communities, and some of them are, do, do pretty good work. So you have to find out the reputation of a given podiatrist in a community if you're going to go to podiatrist and, and specifically look at what their training is, how many years residency they did, and what type of surgery they do because the, the scope of practice and the variability among podiatrists is huge, whereas it's not that big among orthopedic surgeons. It's huge among podiatrists, depending on what their residency has been after the training and all sorts of things. 
Well, let's talk about feet. <laughs> when I was younger, I wore ten and a, size 10 and a half shoes when I was in medical school. I now wear size 11 and a half shoes. Now, my circumference isn't growing, my height is not growing, but my feet seem to be growing. Is that odd or does that happen a lot where shoe size increases? Well, I think it happens somewhat because maybe your arch collapses a little bit as your midfoot stretches out, like your midfoot ligaments, and that uh, that will increase your half a size. Plus, the shoes are uh, are not um, they're not necessarily all the same. In other words, you might fit an eleven and a half in one and a ten and a half in another brand. And, Good point. And so you can't you you can't always compare uh, a shoe uh, shoes. Because the the sizing isn't isn't precise, so I think a lot of times though our ligaments do stretch out with time, and they our arch probably relaxes a little bit, and then that leads to a little bit uh, a little bit bigger foot, if you will. Plus, if you're running, a lot of times people want more space in their forefoot than if you're in a dress shoe. Uh, true. And so, true. Uh, because you don't want to hit your toe at the end of the shoe when you're running, particularly if you're going up or downhill. So if you're running in especially in a hilly situation going downhill if your shoe's too short you're going to be in a lot of pain because your big toe is going to be hitting the end of the shoe or your second toe so is there an importance to the arch of the foot you mentioned the arch before and in the first segment of the show we talked about the fact that some have said that wearing arch supports ends up weakening the arch which needs to be strengthened what's reality there well, so the arch is a really complex topic to talk about. Uh, the, what I would say is that the arch is made up of the bones of the foot. That's kind of like the bow, if you are the bow, if you will. Okay. And the string is the plantar fascia, mm-hmm. and so there's a tension from the plantar fascia on that arch. And their arches are variable. So some people have really flat arches. Some people have pathologically flat arches. Some people have normal arches, some people have high arches, some people have pathologically high arches, and there's reasons for all that. So the arches are so variable in the foot, it's hard to say whether an orthotic particularly weakens or doesn't weaken a foot. In the barefoot running world, though, they think that the intrinsic, the reason to do barefoot running is because you want to strengthen the intrinsic muscles of your foot, and that your, your muscles are weak because you're not you know you're using an arch support. But a lot of people, if you have a pathologic situation or you have a real flat foot, an arch will actually help support that, and no amount of strengthening your intrinsic muscles is going to do away with that. Or a high arch foot, you might want to wear an orthotic to kind of lower the arch because, again, it's not an extrinsic muscle problem. It's it's uh, you know, it's, a path, but it's a pathologic, and you're trying to offload something. So that's a, that's a complex topic. Okay. It's not, not simple. Were, were people created to wear shoes, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this thing, I, I think, the, so the barefoot running craze started probably in about, I think I want to say 2008, 9, 10, something like that. And uh, their, their idea was that, well, the primitive people didn't wear shoes and they could run all over without uh, shoes. Uh, now, there are, uh, I think, uh, most civilizations have gone to wearing shoes because the shoe protects the foot from puncture, etc. And even if you have thick, thick calluses, you're not protected from puncture and, and you know, sharp objects and things like that and, and hot surfaces, per se. Uh, and so there's a great benefit to wearing shoes, and I think it's an advancement. Plus, it can give you added traction in certain situations. You know, like if you're hiking oh, in yes. the hills and things mm, yes. like that. So, with hiking boots, and so um, I, I wouldn't say that I would say that the shoe has been an advancement for for the mankind, if you will. And of course, you know the the barefoot runners would say, "Well, we need to go back to this primitive style." But most of them, uh, when you look at the primitive men that did barefoot running, they walked on their toes, or they walked, or they were midfoot strikers and not hindfoot strikers. So a lot of people are hindfoot strikers today. Uh, and uh, so then they, they, they use a bigger heel, heel cushion, etc. when they're hindfoot striking with their running. And so they need a heavier shoe generally. Yeah, it seemed like in, in looking at some of the, uh, the work by 
uh, Christopher McDougall and others, they were saying just that if you're a heel striker, but you take the cushiony heel away, you'll automatically convert to being a midfoot or a toe striker because it's so uncomfortable to strike the heel first um, that, you know, it's you, you shouldn't strike your heel first. It's unnatural. It's, it's interesting to hear that all of these things could be interconnected and which one is cause and which one is effect. Seems like it could be challenging to determine, doesn't it? Yeah, so I... The way to look at that is, first of all, if you've been uh, running your whole life as a heel striker, it's a super hard transition to transition to become a midfoot or a forefoot striker. And I actually tried to do it, and it's hard uh, because I was kind of a hindfoot and some midfoot striking, and it takes a lot of work to try to strengthen your cast. And when you first try to do it, it's very, very difficult. And you'll, you know, you can get stress fractures, etc., because you've got to strengthen the mineral uh, are the bone in your feet uh, so you don't get stress fractures transit muscles have to strengthen in your foot and your calf muscles usually aren't strong enough so you tend to get shin splints and other things when you're trying to transition and so the amount of mile if you're used to doing a they say five mile run you probably can do a half mile run the first time you try that and so it's a hard transition and i walked all over europe with essentially a barefoot shoe on uh, in Spain, all over those cobblestones, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, your feet hurt, but I got used to it. Uh, but no, you don't really strike your heel with that, but you're, but you, it takes a while to transition in a shoe like that. I don't think I could wear a shoe like that today uh, because it's. It, I still have them, actually, but I don't wear them anymore. But it, they're, it, so, it, you know, it, it, it's something that you've got to get used to and you've got to do it constantly, and it probably takes 6 to 12 months to transition to become a if you're a rear foot striker to become a four foot striker uh, to strengthen your muscles and to get up to your same mileage and speed that you were at before. We're coming up against a break, but after the break, we're going to be back with one of the mysteries of the universe that's going to be solved by Dr. Brayton. That mystery, high heel shoes. Back at you shortly on Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And you're back with Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And our special guest today is Dr. Paul Brayton from Modesto, California, an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in all things foot. And we were just uh, before the break about to forget running shoes and move on to something much more important, Uh, something that has, well, something that's really troubled the minds and hearts of men probably for thousands of years. (laughs) I'm not exactly sure how long. And that is this idea uh, the mystery of high heel shoes. I, best, I guess the best question to ask first off is why? <laughs> How did this come about and why would such a thing happen? Well, um, anyway, I, I, I really, that's a difficult, <laughs> actually, that's an interesting topic. Uh, I, I think back, so when I was in college, I started reading about the first two pages of a book called The Naked Ape by Desmond Morris. I think it's <laughs> Desmond Morris. I, and it's a, it's a very famous book on anthropology and a lot of college students read it and in there it talked about high heel shoes and how how the heel is meant to extend the leg in a woman and of course men don't wear these for the most part thanks Uh, occasionally men do to be a little higher but it's 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 meant to attract the male mate etc and um so that it's a it's a big a big topic so talking with women about high heel shoes especially when they're pointed in the front and they're really tight and the shoe doesn't the foot doesn't even fit in the shoe you know they're not functional shoes at all so so, so it's really um, to attract men is that what is that what you're saying the, well yeah and, and though some of the newer ones now when they have a platform in the front and they have a platform in the back they may only be raised you know a half inch or so so it's not that much but it shortens the Achilles tendon. If you wear it too long, you can get Achilles tendon contract, contracture, mm. and usually it's crushing your forefoot. Plus, your it creates a depending on how big and wide the heel is. The wider the heel, the more stability you have. But especially the narrow, pointy ones, which go, it, you know, these things go in and out of style. Like every year, it's another <laughs> style. So yes. I don't know what's going to be next year. It'll be a wide heel, a pointy heel. It'll be something else the year after. But you know, uh, it puts your ankle uh, at more risk of injury, and ankle injuries are pretty common in that. And I'll just tell you an antidote. So I had I was on the trip in Lourdes this year with our pilgrimage, and one of the women was wearing a high-heeled shoe, and she tripped, and she twisted her ankle. <laughs> and there were all these women sitting at this table, and, of course, she has like a six-foot-nine husband, of course, and she's like five 
seven, <laughs> five, eight. And so she says, I have to wear high heels. I have to wear high heels. All these women are looking around at me. Tell her not to wear those high heels, Paul. And, and I started laughing. And, I, <laughs> and she said, and then Lay said, well, why are you laughing, Paul? Well, because she's in total denial. I, I, I could tell her she's not going to listen to me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and the lady looked at me, and she smiled, and she high-fived me. <laughs> well, let's go to the other extreme. If we left the crazy high heels and we go to uh, what I see so often in the teens at mass, and that would be flip-flops. Uh, are those better for your feet than high heels? No, I don't think flip-flops are, they don't provide any support whatsoever. I don't think they're particularly good for your feet at all. I mean, I think they're more for, um, you know, for me, flip-flops are like for walking around the pool or you're going maybe to a pool party or something like that where you're going to get in the pool and you just want to get them off quickly, but they're not very supportive footwear at all. So what maybe sh- at the beach, they're okay. So what should the average person do when looking for a pair of shoes for walking and everyday wearing? What do you recommend as key points? So, you know, first of all, what type of foot do you have? So, so a flat foot is flexible foot. A normal arch can go between flexible and more rigid. As you toe off, your foot becomes rigid, becomes a more high arch foot. And when you heel strike, your foot becomes flexible to absorb the shock. And so a high arch foot is tends to be rigid, so you need to go into what they call a cushion shoe. And so if you look at running shoes, they're in three categories. They're motion control, which is for the low arch feet. They have uh, usually a rocker bottom, a stiff stiff uh, sole on the bottom, something to stiffen it, and they have a good heel counter. So you're so talking arch- running or walking right now, shoes? Running and walking are kind of the same. They, they, they have, kind of have the same concept. Oh, okay. I mean, with the more advanced technology, that, like the New Balance and, and uh, Brooks. So, and so some of those high arch shoes, you want something called motion control. No, no, low arts, uh, uh, pets planets, you want a motion control. Okay. High arch shoes, you want a cushion shoe. Cushion, so that's right. Absorb shock. So most of your Nikes have a lot of cushion in them. They'd be better for a high arch foot. But for, and a normal arch foot can wear a stability shoe. They could wear kind of anything they want because they're kind of normal anatomy and they've got normal alignment. Um, so it depends on what you want to do. But um, And then you usually need to pick a shoe. And so it's great if you have they have a treadmill or something that you can walk on or jog on or run on yes. at mm. the store. And you could try it out and see does this feel good when I'm running? Because that, you know, you might buy it and think it feel, you know, feels good just in the store, but you get out and you walk a little bit or you walk on a, you know, maybe a incline or something and you can't stand the shoes. So, uh, but usually the, the higher end shoes, higher end running and walking shoes are all in those three categories. Okay. And I have been to stores where they do have the treadmill you can walk on and run on. And then one of the, uh, sales people can uh, help you with that. And I found that incredibly helpful myself. No, it is. It is. And they can usually tell you just by your, uh, the anatomy of your foot. And I, I usually can tell just by looking at somebody's feet because I've examined them so many feet, but, um, they can tell you by looking at your anatomy that, you know, you need to be in this kind of category. Shoe would be better for you. And, uh, and, uh, and usually that, usually that's pretty accurate. People talk about orthotics a lot. Are they important? Are they good? How do you know if you need one? Well, I think most people in, okay, so there's two types of orthotics. There's an off-the-shelf orthotic, and there's a custom molded orthotic. Custom molded are better, but you're talking usually above $300 for custom molded orthotic. I think Good Feet has them for less, but they're not, I don't think they're very good orthotics in reality. But uh, if you want to get a true custom molded, a very good custom molded orthotics are usually three to $400. And then the cut off the shelf one will cost fifty to seventy five dollars. Those are usually pretty good. Um, most people don't. If you have normal arches, you don't really need them. I don't usually recommend them in kids because even if they need them, they're growing too fast. Unless they have real severe deformity to really benefit from orthodontic, I think it's better to pick a very supportive shoe. Usually, it's a flat foot person you're putting it in anyway, but it's better to put a very supportive shoe. And then the goal of the orthotic, too, you have to figure out, you know, if you have a high arch foot, are we trying to, you want to, you know, maybe lower the arch and, and increase flexibility in the foot? Well, you might put wedges in it certain on the heel and things like that. So there's, uh, you have to kind of know what you're doing there. But 
orthotics can be helpful, but I think shoes are more important than orthotics, having the right shoes. And then if you still need, if you're still having pain or discomfort, then you should start thinking about orthotics and see somebody because maybe you've got something else biomechanical going on that can be corrected with surgery, et cetera. Paul, over 2 million Americans a year are diagnosed with something called plantar fasciitis. And you talked about how that's the string of the bow in the foot. Can you explain to people what fasciitis is, what causes it, and what can and should be done about it? So fasciitis runs the gamut from a, what I would call micro tears, which is the most common, all the way up to complete rupture. So the uh, in a higher arch foot, that plantar fascia is under a lot of tension, and also in a low arch foot, it can be in a, a lot of tension. Usually the normal arch has the lowest tension. Mm-hmm. And so usually you get plantar fasciitis right where it comes off the heel, and it's usually due to a micro tear in that, or inflammation if it's not a micro tear. So it usually presents as heel fascia. pain on the bottom of the heel? On the bottom of the foot. Now that can also be caused, there's a few small percentage of people that have compression there's a plantar nerve that runs from the medial side over to the lateral side right at that origin of the plantar fascia, and sometimes that's causing and you have to decompress the nerve, but that's, okay. not, that's not very common. Most common is just inflammation of the plantar fascia, and then it micro tears, partial rupture, complete rupture, and, and it becomes more severe the more, uh, more extensive the rupture is, if you will. Um, it can end a it can end a, a sprinter's career. A lot of sprinters have high arch feet, and uh, I've seen some plantar fascia ruptures, and it takes them. It's almost impossible for some of them to recover from those injuries. Let's go to the other end of the age spectrum and help out those people who may have difficulty walking. Uh, you brought up a good point in prepping for this interview, and that is, how do you know when somebody needs a cane? Uh, how do people know? Well, Okay, so there's a couple of things I look at. There's some fall assessments and there's, there's questions. There's a bunch of them out there, so you can look them up online and you can answer those questions. You'll get a score, and right there you can tell if you need a cane. But what I do is have people see, if in an elderly person, one of the big questions is if you're sitting in a chair, can you cross your arms over your chest and not use your arms to get up out of the chair? A lot of elderly people can't do that. Now, that's a predictor of morbidity and mortality because usually that's a sign of their core strength. If they have enough core strength, they can get out of a chair easily. And if they don't, that means their balance is probably bad. They're going to fall down. They have to use their arms for support. The other thing I have people do is can they walk on their toes and heels, which is a sign of coordination. Uh, Can they toe walk, heel walk? And then the next thing is can they tandem gates? You should be able to do that with your eyes closed, like walking a straight line, like a sobriety test. Like heel-toe, heel-toe? Heel-toe, heel-toe. If they can't do heel-toe, which a lot of elderly people can, and they tend to drift when they're doing it, uh-huh. uh, then they need at least a cane, maybe a four-point cane, maybe a walker, depending on how bad they're drifting, because they're at very high fall risk. And so I, I look upon it as like in, in an elderly person, Falls are really important because usually you're osteopor- you have a lot of osteoporosis. You're very likely to break at least a wrist, but usually it's a hip. Hmm. If you break a hip, there's a morbidity and mortality associated with oh, that. Oh, yeah. And a decreased quality of life and decreased length of life. Usually I can't, are, I can't, uh, I can't say. We all know, I think, so many times when we've heard of someone falling, hip fracture, and it is the beginning of the end for them and the elderly. Yes, that's that's true. Actually, my mother-in-law just broke her hip last week. So. Oh, no. well, I hope but, she's the glaring exception. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a it's a very it's a very common fracture. But a lot of it's due to balance issues in the elderly. There's programs like the University of Oregon has a program called Bones and Balance. You can look at that online, and it goes through exercises to help you maintain your balance to avoid falling and. Uh, because as you grow older, a lot of times when you're young, most people, as they start to fall to the right, say they'll put out their right foot to brace their fall. An elderly person won't do that. But if you do some therapy uh, with them, they'll do it like when they're young. And mm. that can be the difference in, in between, and that, you know, if they fall and break their hip, it shortens their life. Well, that can be, uh, and their quality of life is usually destroyed with that, or at least ha- hampered for a long period of time, where it has if they can just avoid that fall just by putting their foot out, that can 
just a huge difference in their life. Well, it's interesting to think of a cane as being about not falling. I think most people probably think a cane is about, you know, my foot hurts, I can't put weight on it, therefore I'm going to use a cane. But really listening to you describe, it's about preventing that unstable, gated person from what could be a devastating injury from a fall, isn't it? Yes, that's what it is, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Paul, in treating patients, is there one thing that frustrates you the most? For instance, is there one common sense thing that if people did it, it would reduce this condition that you see often? Well, I I think one of the common things that I see is the uh, posterior tibialis tendonitis, which is pain behind the medial side of the ankle. And a lot of times it gets ignored by the primary care physician. They don't know how to treat it. It gets ignored by the patient, and then it goes on, and that tenant is the tenant that holds up the arch. And so what happens is that tenant will then stretch out over time as it goes through this chronic tendinosis, and then that leads to eventually there's no pull on the ligaments of the midfoot anymore. The ligaments of the midfoot stretch out, and the whole arch collapses, and the foot drifts up and out, and your axis of your tibia and your foot now become malaligned in. So this is pain behind the inside part of the ankle, kind of between the ankle and the Mm -hmm. Achilles tendon? Yes. Okay. And so if you can catch that early on, usually some immobilization works. I wouldn't do a steroid injection because you don't want to weaken the tendon. But uh, if you can catch that early on with physical therapy, anti-inflammatories, modalities, maybe immobilization in a cast or a boot for a short period of time, usually you can get those symptoms to resolve. And then you can prevent this this kind of collapse of the foot, which is it requires a lot of bony and soft tissue work to get that foot back in alignment. Um, so if you can prevent that from happening, then that's a good thing. Well, Paul, as we finish up, could you direct our listeners to uh, to any good sources of information online or otherwise uh, where they can learn more about common problems uh, of the foot and ankle? So... There, I'm a member of the American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Association, and so um, you can look up the, Ameri- uh, the AOFAS, American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Association, uh, our society, and uh, you can look it up online. They have a lot of handouts and a lot of information. You can also look at uh, the Academy, uh, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, um, which the, the AOFAS is, is a subspecialty category, kind of a member of that. And you can look up there. They have a lot of good information on common foot and ankle problems, too, at those two sites. Are there any final thoughts you want to share with listeners about the foot and the ankle? Well, yeah, I would just say you think about the foot. So every time you take a step and you're walking, six times body weight's going through your ankle. When you jog, it's 12 times, and when you run, it's 15 times body weight. So the forces in the foot are enormous. They're enormous. So if you notice a problem, treat it earlier than later. Yes, yes. Actually, (laughs) that sounds like a good reason to lose weight. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Actually, people that are overweight tend to have foot and ankle problems. And I always tell them, you know, a pound off. Your body weight is six pounds off your foot walking, 12 pounds jogging, 15 pounds running. Wow. That's That's a lot of fun. Paul, thank you so much for being here with Dr. Doctor today. We'll be back with the end of the show after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And it's time to, you know, get a foot in the door and and address our medical trivia question of the day. Yes. How many bones are in each foot that Jesus held in Dr. Brayton's favorite uh, passage of the Bible dealing with feet? When he was washing the disciples' feet, how many bones were in each foot that he was holding? And even though the tibia and fibula of the leg interact at the ankle, they are not considered foot bones. So how many bones are there? And is this number more than the same as or less than the number of bones in each hand. That's a tough one. Well, we've often heard it said, or I've often heard it said, that uh, over half the bones in the body are in the uh, hands and feet. And that is true. So each foot has 26 bones. Each hand has 26. 
seven bones. So the hand has one more bone than the foot. And the difference is the wrist has eight bones and the tarsus, the foot equivalent of the wrist, has seven bones. That's where the difference is. Otherwise, your thumb and big toe each have two bones or phalanges and your fingers and the other four toes each have three phalanges. And then there's the five um, you know, metatarsals or metacarpals in the, in the feet and hands. Now, you can also have some extra little bones in the feet, but those don't count. Those are called sesamoid bones, not to be confused with open sesame or sesame seed bun. But the sesamoid bones, the kneecap is a sesamoid bone. It's a bone that forms due to um, friction in the, in the thigh tendon. Well, you also get sesamoid bones sometimes on the, uh, or underneath your big toes at the end, but uh, those don't count. So now we know between the hands and feet, that's 106 bones out of the 206 bones of the body. And now, on to truly useful information. <laughs> we have listener questions, and this time, none other than our own Chris Stroud is the expert. So I will ask, he will answer. Question one of two. I am curious, this being the woman who wrote it in, I am curious if there has ever been any research regarding the woman in a state of postpartum amenorrhea, that is, uh, no periods after giving birth, and whether their hormone profile and preferences in a mate, interesting, are more similar to a woman who is on contraceptives or not taking contraceptives. Yeah, good question. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. This listener's really spent some time thinking about this. The first thing that comes to mind is it's important to point out um, the state of postpartum amenorrhea, that is, the woman who's not menstruating in those months after giving birth, is a perfectly ordered and natural state. Uh, it's very physiologic. The woman is designed uh, to be in that state. So nothing similar to a woman on contraceptives. Right, because nothing could be further from the natural state in contraceptives. Correct. Those are synthetic hormones given at precisely the wrong times in the menstrual cycle. That's how they exert their effect. So uh, there would be nothing similar about those two because they don't, they don't bear any similarities except the absence of menses, but the source of the absence is so dramatically different. The two have nothing to do with each other. That's good to know. So what's the source of a mate part of the question? Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I, you know, for generations, maybe since the beginning of time, <laughs> uh, I think we've tried to understand why <laughs> women would be attracted to us. <laughs> there are many jokes about that, which will not be repeated here. <laughs> this is a family-friendly show. Yes, we are. <laughs> um, and and I, I think it's, it's a fascinating idea. But the more you study the fertility cycle, and patients say this to me every day in the office, they will say, how is it that anyone ever gets pregnant? It, it ought to be impossible. And that usually leads to discussions about, well, is a, is a man more attracted to a woman at a certain point in the cycle, or is, is a woman more attracted to her mate at certain points in the cycle? And I think at the end of the day, it remains probably as it should be, <laughs> and that is a mystery. A joyful mystery. And we'll leave it at that and move yeah. on to the next question. Question number two. Many women, myself included, that being the writer of the question, do not begin to cycle until a year or two or more after giving birth. And my understanding is that this is more common in traditional societies. I'm not sure that it's normal for a woman to cycle throughout her childbearing years. It seems more likely that she'd usually be either pregnant or nursing and not having cycles, becoming pregnant again shortly after her fertility returns. So I guess, in other words, she's saying that if a woman isn't using some kind of contraception and is having relations with her husband and is nursing, that she's not going to have all that many cycles during her fertile years. You know, it's interesting, and it varies from woman to woman and pregnancy to pregnancy. So what we know from uh, Creighton-based research uh, and the Creighton fertility model is that uh, 56 days after the birth of your child, you are guaranteed to be sterile if you are breastfeeding full-time. So if the only source of, source of nutrition for the child is the mother's breast milk, the mother is infertile for 56 days. Now, we teach that on day 57, <laughs> you may or may not be fertile, but you have to assume that you are because at least 30 to 40% of women will ovulate 
before they menstruate the first time. So if they're waiting for a menstrual period as a sign of their return to fertility after childbirth, they may be waiting on into the next pregnancy. But what if they're checking cervical mucus or basal body temperature? Will that help predict? It, it can. It, uh, and our, our fertility care practitioners and teachers of Couples to Couples League will tell you that that is a tough time for all couples. And yes. It can be very challenging to understand the natural fertile signs. But in general, uh, women are infertile for a period of time naturally when breastfeeding. And what is variable and I think relatively unpredictable is that return to fertility after those initial 56 days. If you look at very large families, I find this interesting. I often make this observation at mass when my brain is wandering. (laughs) Very large families, the children tend to be about 20 22, 24 months apart. There'll be an occasional 12-monther, but a a lot of things. And, you know, I'll ask patients about this, and they'll say, you know, it's a combination of breastfeeding amenorrhea, fatigue, uh, (laughs) all of those things, sleep deprivation, all of those things together end up naturally spacing uh, children in in a a really beautiful sort of way. And now you have it. And a public service announcement from the CMA is that from September 26th to 28th at the Gaylord Opryland Hotel in Nashville will be the CMA's 2019 annual educational conference called Physician Heal Thyself, Living a Fulfilled Life in Medicine. Expert speakers, including yours truly, I guess I'm the non-expert, will focus on the crisis of physician and healthcare professional burnout, including spiritual, physical, financial, and mental health consequences. We even get Christian music artist Matt Maher one evening for praise and worship. So be there or be somewhere else. This is Tom McGovern. Thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the CMA, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing the public health harms of pornography with Spokane, Washington plastic surgeon, Dr. Al Oliva. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show.